is Monica Perez, and here with us today is Jason Purcell, an investment advisor with a personal interest in helping households diversify away from traditional stocks and bonds. But he also likes to understand the history and complexities of money and financial markets. So he contacted me recently with an offer to explain this apparent global trend of de-dollarization, where other countries aren't using the dollar as their reserve currency anymore. And that could be crazy scary or it could be no big deal. And because I don't know the answer to that, I thought it would be super fun to talk to Jason about it. And historically, me thinking that was super fun would have been super nerdy. But I think people's interest in what's happening with the dollar is really peaking because looks like the next stop is the central bank digital currency. So I don't know if this is a stepping stone or what. I don't know. But I know that I don't know. So I want to hear it from you. And I also want you in your own words to kind of tell people what you do and why this is, you know, why this is something that you can tackle. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how people can find your stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the best place to find me right now is probably on Twitter. Um, I'm at SDnomics. I respond to, if you send me a message on Twitter, I will respond. If you comment on my stuff, I'll, you know, engage in a conversation. I like Twitter. It's really unhealthy. Um, but I do enjoy it. There's always an argument to be had, which is really dangerous for somebody like me. Cause I like to argue. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, a little bit about me, um, I'm not going to mention the exact name of my employer, but you know my name. And so if you're really resourceful, you can find that information. It's it's really not that hard. Um, but I, I work for a major non-bank financial institution. Um, hopefully, we'll get a chance to touch on the classification of that, which is basically a shadow bank. So hopefully, we'll get a chance to kind of talk about shadow banking. But it's really not that crazy. Uh, there are a lot of non-bank financial institutions that, you know, you could literally look at that and, oh, that's a shadow bank, you know, when you think about it. Um, so I work for one of these major non-bank financial institutions. I'm on a small team of people who is responsible for doing what's called trade lifecycle management. So we're responsible for a, a uh, notional amount in dollars, of course, uh, but a notional amount of contracts that usually fluctuates between Anywhere between three hundred fifty and about five hundred billion dollars. Is that like feel like an inflated number because of derivatives and stuff like that? Like, is it, you know, that's a actually, yeah, you you hit the hit the nail right on the head. So um, you could reduce that a little bit if you took the economic value of the derivatives rather than the notional. But still, it's not like many multiples because if you look at how much money there is in the world, like what the world GDP is, say it's a hundred trillion dollars or something, mm -hmm. it's like the the amount of financial instruments is in the quadrillions, in the hundreds and trillions. Yeah, or yeah. maybe it is, mm -hmm. maybe it's just in the hundreds of trillions, but it's just a crazy, it's just a crazy number, which is the kind of scary yeah. thing, like the reserve currency, that makes me wonder, like, are we absolutely playing on a house of cards here, or does it not even mm -hmm. really matter because bricks and mortar is all that counts? Yeah, well, um, is. <laughs> Shoot! If you want to go down a really quick rabbit hole, I could I could clear a little bit of that up for you because I deal with I do deal with derivatives and I have been for about five years now. Um, so, and this is I think part and parcel of this conversation. When people talk about de-dollarization, they'll often mention 
okay, well, there's not just all of this debt that we know about. You know, we have about $30 trillion of U.S. debt that's outstanding. And then there's all the borrowings of the corporations in the United States. We have something like uh, $12, $13 trillion in mortgage debt. And so people look at the U.S. and just say, oh, my gosh, this is a basket case of debt. And the only reason we're able to do it is because we have the world, uh, we have the whole world conned into this system where they will buy our assets. You know, that's how a lot of people in the what I would call the liberty community tend to look yeah, at that. It's the petrodollar replacing the gold standard is how I think of it. And my understanding was, yeah, we get, we say we'll pay you in dollars for all the oil that you have, and you will in turn buy our treasuries so that we can be incredibly indebted but still have a fairly stable currency is how I think about it. But I, I'm happy to be completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, um, there's there's like half of the petrodollar idea that is 100% true, which is the idea of petrodollar recycling. And that started okay. to become a thing in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And you can actually find, uh, so I'm a big history geek. And, and one thing that I do um, when doing research for things like this is I go through the New York Times archive um, for the hundred and some odd years that there were actual actual journalists, uh, journalists <laughs> looking yes. and working there, you know, because it started in 1851. So there's a lot of, a lot of uh, stuff to work with. Um, but if you go through the archives and you look at like the early seventies, do you have this? Is that the Scylla book? It's Sydney, Sydney Homer. and um, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I love that one. Isn't that the <laughs> best? I asked her for Christmas yeah. one year, and I got like whatever earrings from Tiffany instead. I was like, come on. <laughs> oh shoot! Anyway, but yes, yes. So history of I I can totally relate to finding that fascinating. It's it is. I mean, it's those yeah. little. I, uh, there was a guy on my show recently, Shane Cashman, who said. He likes to take the cubist approach to history, like look at things from all different angles and you get a totally different picture. And there, you, mm -hmm. I wouldn't even know where to begin of the angles to look at, but that's a great place to kind of flesh out some of the shadows in, in our kind of historical narrative. So, okay, got So in the early 70s yeah. and then, but it went back, um, you said, to the yeah, yeah. 1800s? What, was, what went back to the 1800s? The New York Times mm. kind of mm -hmm, does. Mm -hmm. So if you want to just if you want to just read some really old stuff, mm. just go mm -hmm. and get the. I think it comes with a membership in the New York Times, mm -hmm. which I'm, I understand for a lot of people that's yes. that's hard to justify paying for because they're awful. But there's a lot of good well, stuff. Well, the, the archives the are <laughs> yes, and what, what surprises yeah. me sometimes is when I look at old old articles, how blatantly propagandistic they still are, and also how. Mm -hmm much they resemble what is said today. Like, I mean, some of the same issues are yeah. treated with the same talking points. And I just think this is a function of the fact that human beings only like stay cognitive for like 60 years. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then we forget everything from the previous generation yes, or maybe totally. two generations ago. And we yes. just do the same thing over yes, and over again. Yes, the memory <laughs> hole. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. And it's just, I just think of that like, but we would just stop. I, I, I'm already, I'm not even that old. I'm not even, you know, 100 years old, but I'm already like, oh my Gosh, I've heard. That. Are they literally doing the whole debt government shutdown thing again? Are people like, what do you think oh, about yeah. that? It's like, what do I think about? <laughs> yeah. I don't think about it. I'm not thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, Dave Smith had a great bit about that, where he's like, uh, if they shut down the not the National Park Service, I don't think the the bears out in the out in the national parks are saying. Uh, I don't know. Did you get an email? Uh, <laughs> apparently, they're not running the services today. I don't, I don't know what's going on. It's like COVID. Um, if you didn't have a screen. 
Yeah, okay, yeah. If you didn't ahead. have the yes. internet, you didn't know about it. Um, yeah. Or the television. That's yeah. right. Yeah, tr- truly. Yep. Um, so this was the, no. that what I was reflecting was the kind of meme of the seventies, right? So yeah, uh, and I, and I agree. Like I okay, so you validated the idea of recycling into our mm-hmm. debt, right? Mm-hmm. Huge. And then, huge. but you feel like there's a piece of what I said that is not valid. Well, um, it may not even necessarily be what you said. The tittle uh, construct of the petrodollar idea that I hear is that okay, in nineteen seventy one. Uh, Nixon pisses everybody off by going off the gold standard. The reason that people like the dollar in the first place is because it is tied to gold. It's the only currency left in the world that is at that point. Um, So it's the only one that's convertible. But if you get rid of that, then you have all of these people around the world who are now saying, okay, well, why should I, Saudi Arabia, for example, is now saying, okay, well, why should I accept dollars for oil? And so there's this idea out there, which I, have really, really searched high and low to find evidence for. Um, But there's this idea, and I've read all these different articles, and I've looked at their SIS that claim to explain, you know, how the petrodollar system came to be. And, And the key piece of it that I dispute is that there's an idea that sometime in the 1970s, maybe 1974, that the Americans and the Saudis came together and they met and they devised an agreement whereby the Saudis would exclusively price and sell oil in dollars, right, in exchange for basically being a member of the U.S. protectorate, which mm-hmm. you know, the Saudi Arabia is, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. why we... <laughs> I'd say you know, they get to blow up buildings yeah. and stuff and uh, yeah. get jetted off the scene. Or collaborate to blow up buildings, let's just say. Right, right. Uh, And and that's one of the many reasons, or actually it is the uh, primary reason why we've been at war, why we've been supporting a war in Yemen since uh, 2016 or whatever. isn't that? Is that U.S.-Saudi relationship. It's truly an atrocity. Yes, terrible. Yeah. Yeah, um... So that's the piece. So that's the piece of it that I that I can't find any evidence for. We also have some of the notes, some of the documents about Kissinger's time from that uh, era as Secretary of State, and they do talk about the dollar system. They talk about trying to wean the rest of the world off of gold. Um, they talk about who their allies are in that whole equation. Yep. Do they say why they want to wean the world off gold? Well, because if people want to redeem their dollars for gold, then they will accumulate the gold. And the advantage that the United States comes out of World War II with is that they have two-thirds of the world's gold. And so if if they convince the rest of the world that they don't need to actually redeem their dollars to get gold, then they can essentially control the world's uh, financial system, or they can basically, they can use the Fed and the Treasury to control monetary policy for the rest of the world, as long as there's no, um, as long as there's no call on that option to redeem their dollars. So there's no... Ac- accountability mechanism. There's no anchor. Right. Ultimately, okay. there's no anchor. Okay. Yeah, there's no limit. Right. right. And maybe maybe they feel that gold has inherent value and they wanted to stop the music when they had it all. Right. Maybe they just wanted to hold on to it. Yeah. 
Um, I, yeah, and I do believe that ultimately, wh- why does any government go away from gold? So if you look at each of the examples where a country has gone from convert- from having convertibility to gold to not having convertibility to gold, do you want to take a guess at what the primary cause is? I bet, I bet you could probably guess because you know enough. To, so, to leave the gold standard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why would a country go from converting to not getting? Well, our reason was they had inflated, right? Too much. There was too much. They didn't want to give it all away, right? Yeah, so that's the most recent one. I mean, I would one. say you debt. Look, you know, if you look before debt. that, it's war, which is, which is debt. Oh, greenbacks, like the war. Civil War. Exactly. Yes, yes exactly. Yes, right. yes. So U.S. dollar oh, yeah, was convertible yeah, exactly. to gold for from 1790 all the way up until um, 1861. And then it wasn't. And why wasn't it? Because the federal administration under Lincoln and his uh, Treasury Secretary, Salmon P. Chase, who was kind of a, an evil genius. Um, mm-hmm. when, any, anyway, um, but they didn't want to convert to gold because they needed it. Okay, the federal government needed all of the monetary gold in the country so that they could pay the Europeans to bring in all of these war goods so that they could subject the South. And then so um, interesting. So there's two kinds of dollars. There's domestic dollars and there's foreign dollars. Like what you're saying is it didn't even have to be in two different colors, but it, it was like they called them greenbacks. But what you're saying is there was like gold was the international currency and they could yeah. just domestically screw people with this. Ex- and literally, yeah, that's what's scary about that's what I think is scary. What whether it's really true or not, but what's scary about the idea of losing reserve status is that Mm -hmm. all those dollars that are out in the world making transactions that don't involve us would come rushing back and we could still produce what was produced within our borders. But Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. our actual dollars would, you'd need 10 times as many to bring anything in because Mm -hmm. they no longer... um, if it no longer had the demand for the outside goods, uh, there would just be a vast oversupply. Is that kind of what sounds scary about it or not? Yeah, and I would even I would even summarize that to say that um, let's say that your currency becomes weaker against other currencies for, for whatever reason, right? Um, one specific example I hope we'll get to is the Mexican peso in the 1980s. The Mexican peso... Uh, they it's pegged to the dollar up until I think 1982 and then they devalue it. And then they eventually just have to, the Mexican government has to let it float because there's so much pressure on the currency. Um, they have a great deal of dollar debts that cannot be repaid. And so the markets naturally, well, two things, they will, there are traders who will bet against that. And so the markets will turn against the peso but there's also just the sheer fact that if the Mexican economy is going into the toilet, then there's not as much need for the peso around the world. And so the currency is going to fall in demand. How much that affects your domestic inflation rate, I would say depends on how well diversified your economy is. How much stuff are you able to produce at home? Yeah, so I just want to say that like when Trump was was encouraging manufacturing at home, I'm like, that makes no sense because we don't have a comparative advantage in manufacturing. We are mm-hmm. not going to make things cheaper, better than other countries who 
you know, we should stick to like building computers and making movies is the economic, you know, libertarian economic theory would say that. Unless I said, maybe he's going autarky, which is he wants to bring stuff inside so that if we have a war, we can produce things. But I dismissed that idea because I thought, well, that would mean that the powers that be who are driving this care about us and want to win this war. But maybe, maybe it's just that they are in that one case, they, they would want the quote us, which would include them to mm-hmm. win the war. But uh, so I'd love for you to address what you think was going on with, with Trump doing that or with this oh. movement to bring, or even it was it, it could have been just pure politics and maybe that didn't even occur to you, but yeah. Oh man. It's really hard to tell with him. Um, <laughs> oh, I assume it was somebody else driving it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to figure out his personality. I would just say, why do you sure. think, was it a real or a fake thing? Did it really happen? I actually wonder. I wonder if we actually have more manufacturing now than we did six years ago. I don't know. I'd have to. Well, and of course, COVID, like the COVID factor screws up all the cause and effect. It oh, does, I have to talk to you about that too. Sure. Sorry. I'm all over the place. I'm super sorry. I <laughs> no, meant not no, to do I'm that. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm loving it. I'm on uh, like three or four hours of sleep myself. So I think it'll be a oh really my fun gosh. conversation. At least espresso. for us. I don't know if your listeners will get much better. <laughs> oh, I'm a very smart and uh, frenetic listeners who obviously can follow me going all over the place because they always do it. But I do want to um, ask you later about COVID. But so did I even jump the gun in asking you about the petrodollar? We're not there uh, yet, no, right? No, no, not so, okay. yeah, we're kind of not there yet, but uh, it doesn't. We can go in any order; it doesn't really matter. So, well, like, so what? What's the backstory? What got us to that point? Like, there's a first half us? of the history, and then you sent me some blurb that, uh, like, some bullet points. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the natural starting point is probably. Uh, so the natural starting point is probably with the sterling market which really got going in the 1850s. Um, And since we were talking about these going off of gold convertibility to fight wars, uh, something that happened in England in 1797 is that they did drop convertibility to, I believe that the pound sterling was more commonly converted into sterling silver at that point rather than gold. So they did drop convertibility in order to go to war. Um, They maintained that setup in order to fight the Napoleonic Wars. So that's uh, the late 700s all the way up until the 18-teens, um, I think maybe 1820. And then they they did actually end up restoring convertibility in 1821. So you could look at Britain at this point, and like, let's say that you are you know, a business person or a banker or something, and you've got some balances of excess money that you want to put to work. Where Where is it going to be invested and in what currency? You could look at that and say, well, look at how profligate London is, right? They went off the gold stirred or they went off the, their silver convertibility in order to pay for this war. And it took them, you know, 25 years to reinstate it. But and, and and that's and that's a decent point, okay. And in eighteen fifty, you know, you've only got thirty years of convertibility there. That's not exactly a huge long history. But on the other hand, that setup is actually a lot better than the rest of Europe. So, you know, in the seventeen hundred in the late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds, most of the countries in Europe are kind of at war with each other, and they're all decing their currencies in order to fight these wars. That's that's just what they do, and um, and 
admittedly, I don't know as much about the specific wars of Europe over those centuries as I should. I was realizing that actually in preparing for this podcast <laughs> is that I would, I would really like to go in and, and kind of get a, a mental working memory of, of like, okay, from this year to this year, it was the, um, you know, the Franco-Prussian war. And this was when the, the first Anglo-Dutch war, and this is when the second Anglo-Dutch war was and all this stuff, but I just don't know enough about it. But um, the phrase for that that we now use for the United States is it's the cleanest, dirt, dirty shirt in the laundry, right? So, Ouch. of course, yeah. So, of course, you know, London, the crown is profligate. They will drop convertibility in order to go to war, sure. But everybody else is going to do the same thing. So your question is, as far as what currency am I going to store my balances in? What currency am I going to invest in? It's not which one is the best, which one is really, uh, which of these governments is going to protect me, It's which one is the least bad. Well, I guess I would say there are two other ways I would look at it, which I guess the least bad is one of the ways, which is which one's going to remain standing and will they still have that currency or will they give you yes. a new peso or whatever? And then the alternative is trade and store of value and stuff actually is in good or goods or gold so that you right. can't use the currency, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Because I think of and like the, rub the ruble and the... Juan or Raminbi or whatever, like for a long time, and maybe even still it, to some extent, whatever, but you couldn't trade it at all outside the country, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, it was just use like, like I think Hitler had one of those to a Reichsmark or whatever. It was like one coin was worth one hour of labor. Mm -hmm. And that was it. But I doubt he was trading that. Actually, I heard that that's when they really decided to take him out. <laughs> was that he was, they were oh, like, really? oh, wait, you can do whatever you want as long as you, you're not undermining the international monetary system. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, these uh, there's, a, there's a lot of attention devoted to um, the international monetary system as far as the politicians are concerned, no matter how far you go back. So, so, but in that, it, when you have a bunch of countries devaluing or abandoning any kind of standard, I would think, yes, you would, everybody is looking for the kind of unipolar world order or who's going to remain standing, where's the gold. And maybe, maybe that's what's not settled right now for us. And, mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe I would even wonder if they, generate that kind of an atmosphere on purpose like i think that they there's a chance that they're running us up uh such a high debt that can never be paid within this paradigm so that they can give us the new dollar which will be the digi dollar or whatever and so mm -hmm. I, I just wonder sometimes about these crises if they're being manufactured to make that transition rather than the other way around right now yeah, well, there's there's certainly one embedded feature of a fractional reserve banking system where, and that feature is that it is literally impossible to pay off all of the debt, right? Because every time you make new money, that new money comes with a demand for interest. I make a loan for $5 million for uh, five years, and it's 25 Per, oh no, I, I'm really bad at doing math in my head. Okay, <laughs> let's call it, with no sleep. Don't worry about yeah, it. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do one million. Let's do one million dollars, two and a half percent interest. So that's twenty five. Per, so that's twenty five thousand dollars for five years. So you get uh, twenty five times five. What is that? Two hundred fifty k. 
Oh yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> so that's so anyway. You can't always do the tens. It's a million to ten percent. It's a hundred grand. It's a hundred grand. Okay, let's and let's just call it a one year loan. So we only have, no, it can be a five year loan. So you so you make a loan for a million dollars. It's ten percent, like you said, and it's due in five years. And let like it's super simple interest. It's not amortizing or anything like that. You've created a future demand. You know somebody needs to somehow get more money than was originally available, right? So they need a million dollars plus the $50,000 in interest or the $500,000 in interest. Um, and if when you think about the fact that each and every, uh, okay, back up, I assume, I'm, I'm just assuming here that like, uh, you know, we're all familiar with the idea of fractional reserve banking, how money comes about through lending the GSP I think so. kind yeah. of thing. Okay. Um, if maybe maybe in the in comments or, or emails or whatever, if your listeners want to want to do like a separate thing about that. Well, do you have a YouTube video that addresses that level of basicness? I could no, put it in the I show notes. No, but I one. We put it in the show notes. But I think most people okay. who listen know Fractional reserve banking is basically the banks make this. Actually, the, the fractional the fraction is zero right now. So right, yeah, banks are just just enabled to create money out of thin air, and that yeah. that definitely as, as connects want. to it. No gold standard. Yep. You couldn't do that. If money were money. For sure, for sure, yeah. Uh, so that's but that's an embedded feature of the money system we have is that you know there's never enough money to pay off all of the debt and. On one hand, it's like, okay, but not all of the debt needs to be paid off at once. But on the other hand, what that means is that if that credit creation uh, tap or if that credit creation engine ever stops, then somebody is by definition going to default, right? Because with each additional unit of debt, every additional million of million dollars that you create and it gets sent out there into the ether that's somebody's obligation to pay and there was not enough money to pay off that debt before it was issued and so if the and, and so if the money supply stops expanding then just mathematically on its own that means that people are going to default the money does not exist in a sound money environment, like say a gold standard environment, you'd never have a 10% interest rate probably because nominal and real would be the same. And the way people would pay it back is they would produce something of value. And that valuable thing would free up some labor or tech to dig up more gold. Yeah. So you'd actually have more money. But short of that, you since money is not real... They, our system, and not to mention that it is a debt-based currency. They actually rely on that to to make more money, and then they say that the re, that we need more money. That money itself is what makes the economy expand. And I get a little foggy at that point. Like, is the velocity of money really a driver for real value? You know what I mean? Is right, that right, true? Right. But I'm that's I'm done now. Like you've got like, you've yeah. got everything. That's as far as I'm going to be able to. Uh, really into it, what you're saying, and um, yeah. okay, so so yes, it's an, it's it's meant to collapse if it does not ever expand. Right, right, yeah. If if the debt, if the stock of debt stops expanding, then people default on debt. This is what happened. I think this is how I understand what happened. So in 2008, they got to that point. 
it was mm-hmm. going to collapse. You were going to have a debt collapse. And they wouldn't, they can't have that because that really reshuffles the hierarchy. So people go bankrupt who were, you know, the big, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So they had zero interest rates for a really long time so that you could continue to refinance that debt or pay. I mean, if you have zero interest rates, you can actually pay, uh, uh, you know, a discount. (laughs) You know, you can you can incur as much debt as you want if you don't have to pay any interest. So they kept doing that. And I'll tell you, I was like, how there were two things. I was like, A, how are they going to keep this 11-year expansion going when there's a 2% interest rate and any recession needs, you know, according to the Keynesian model, which is what they use, needs 5%. You have 5%. to go further down. Yeah, what are they going right. to do? What could they mm-hmm. possibly do going into an election year to get mm-hmm. negative interest rates? It's not possible. And I was like, they have to do something crazy. And then COVID happened. And I was absolutely convinced that the primary reason, at least for the timing and manner of that event was what they did, which is they just hyper created money, hyper, hyper, hyper created. And you see the inflation. I mean, they just made money worth, I would say, half of what it was worth before. And that got us out of that 2008 bust. And it bought them credibility, which is disgusting. That makes me sick. But yeah. I think that's because now happened. they get to raise rates to fight the inflation. Oh, they, they saved created. it. Yeah, they, in their in their their narrative, I don't even mm-hmm. like that Reagan and Volcker saved the dollar. No, no, yeah, it had collapsed yeah. in ten years. It was like, oh, this no gold standard thing is a disaster, and they were just like, mm-hmm. wait, we can, you know, we can make it work. Let's just do something crazy. Yeah, like a fifteen percent interest rate. So I, uh, yeah. So I think that 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 collapse that you were talking about did actually happen, and they because they they put zerp or whatever zero interest rate in perpetuity. In perpetuity then when COVID came along, and now we are absolutely experiencing the inflation. We are paying for that. We are literally paying double for everything. Our wages mm-hmm. haven't adjusted. That's the thing about inflation is that you're paying double before the wages adjust. People who own assets actually benefit. That's the Cantillon effect. So the closer you are to the new money, yes. then you benefit from the new money because you can take it before the price inflation hits and you can buy resources. But then by the time it gets to everybody else, it's not worth yes. as much. And also, I would say, um, and I've always learned about that, but the people who own the assets already, mm-hmm. all they have to do is hang on, which is what they've been doing for yeah. 14 years or whatever. So all they have to do is hang on. And then I always use the example of a gas station. Like when the price of oil goes up and mm. your gas prices go up, the guy behind the register is still making $10 an hour. Yep. Like they'll run outside and make those prices higher and higher. But the mm-hmm. and the holder of assets is the one who gets that delta. Yeah. And that's why Keynes wanted sticky wages. Well, I uh, wanted yep. to have argued sticky wages were a problem, but sticky wages are fantastic. Sticky wages are great. You don't want to inflate people's productivity away without no. letting them know. That way they don't know. It's really messed up. Yeah. yeah. And then it, it is it is good for wages to adjust if it really depends on uh, what kind what kind of regime you have on, you know, in controlling the steering wheel. Like in the Great Depression, it would have been really awesome if wages had been super, super flexible. Yes, yes. I don't I don't disagree with that. But what I'm saying is he uses that term 
as mm-hmm. if it's a bad thing and and, mm-hmm. and it justifies inflation. But what he's saying Indeed, is right. you can't take you can't take a hundred percent of productivity improvements to yourself mm-hmm. because the wage earner will demand more. Right. And mm-hmm. and in that, but we want a hundred percent. And I would I would ask you as a student of history of stuff like this. My son did, I've mentioned this on the air numerous times, but my son did a second grade project and I was trying to explain to him the value of the gold standard. Maybe I got mm-hmm. it wrong, maybe I got it right, but this the teacher was blown away because what we looked at was the price of milk in 1800 and the price of milk in 1900 and yeah. the price of milk in 2000. And it was flat, if not down. And then mm-hmm. now, you know, it's like 10 times what it is now, but wages were up slightly from 1800 to 1900. And right. from 1900 mm-hmm. to 2000, wages are not up by as much as the price. Now, milk is probably a bad sure. example because it's so manipulative. Manipulated, yeah. but um, I think that would prove the how wages really closer to how wages really behave. Yeah, because the you know people are paid to their productivity. It's not perfect, right? The market economy is uh, it's it's dirty, it's messy. Like people are there's never some mathematical equation that employers have to say, oh well, this person's productivity is blah blah blah, so they will be paid X dollars an hour. But if you look at trends over time, people do tend to get paid according to the value that they produce. And so if you're in a if you're in a monetary system where prices are allowed to inflate after they inflate and they don't and they just don't inflate very much to begin with, then what ultimately happens is that people reap the benefit of that productivity through their wage. And there were also other ways that they did. So uh, Murray Rothbard pointed out that the the length of the work week fell and the length of the work day fell between like 1870 and 1900. And so not only are people making more in nominal terms, but they're paying lower prices because you had steady deflation between those two points. And you had a situation where people didn't have to work as much to be able to afford the same basket of goods. So when you put those three things together, it's like, yeah, you had real wage increases and you had price stability, which is great. And I would argue that that a really free labor market, a labor market with very few barriers to movement absolutely mm-hmm. ensures that people get what they what they're worth and you don't have to be terrified of losing your job because there's so much fluidity in the market yes it's really um as much as i'm a little disappointed in libertarianism not helping at <laughs> all through <laughs> lockdown i do still oh, love yeah. the i mean the economics are true yeah yeah it's certainly um I mean, when you have no power, what are you going to do? But on the other hand, maybe that's a cop out. I don't know. Well, no, I don't even, you know, it wasn't even like that. It was just that I I just went as a, you know, espousing the ideology of libertarianism as I have for so long. And like uh, to people who aren't already libertarians, it can be eye opening and that's great. But what I hadn't realized was that we were way, way beyond the point of ideology making any difference. It's really, at this point, like, it's the Republican-Democrat. It's such a total and utter distraction. I mean, utter. Yeah, yeah. Like, it makes no difference whatsoever. As If we actually stopped paying attention to the red-blue thing, they would just, they'd pull back the curtain. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like they did with COVID. They were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not really... A Democratic Republic or whatever, like we will, yeah, we will violate every we will right. Get our way. It's totally fine. Yes, we'll get our way. Yeah. We'll, if we'll do it if we can do it just by lying. That's fine. 
Otherwise, mm-hmm. we'll do it with guns or whatever. So, okay. Yep. So, why did the dollar take over from sterling? Um, well, it's so it's important to understand why sterling was a, was attractive, and I think we talked about a couple of those points. Um, but so th- so there's a couple more. So the first that I, at least as far as I order them, and it's not necessarily of importance, but just intuitively how to understand it um but the bank of england uh oh yeah we already covered that so the bank of england maintained convertibility to gold than all the other countries in europe or at least you know most of them so second the powerhouse as far as the banking system was concerned in europe the powerhouse up to that point um at least up to the end of the 18th century had been at the bank of amsterdam so the bank of amsterdam is widely considered to be it was founded in 1609 is widely considered to be the first central bank. The really interesting thing about the Bank of Amsterdam is that for the first, um, let's see, over a over a hundred years, so from 1609 to 1780, it basically did not expand the money supply. What it would do is it would, and I'm kind of on a tangent here, but I think this will be interesting for you know anybody listening. What the Bank of Amsterdam did is they converted illiquid coins, right? So um, most people have probably heard about just in general, they know that the kings in Europe, the kingdoms, when they would go to war with each other, or for whatever reason, they would debase their currency. So my, um, let's say our Florentian Florin from the medieval ages had such and such content of gold. Maybe it was uh, three and a half grams or something. Um, well, by the 1700s, that was probably more like a gram or maybe a gram and a half. This happened all over Europe. Um, the kingdoms would, they would do things called sweating the money, which is where they would melt it down. And then they would take the gold and silver content out of it and replace it with cheaper metals. Or they would, um, oh gosh, what's the word? They would grind it. So these metals are soft. And so if you just put them in a bag and shake it around, if you give it enough friction, the precious metal will actually come off in the form of a dust and then you can harvest the dust and then boom the king has more money so this had been happening throughout europe for hundreds of years at this point and the currency that people are transacting in is just this chaos this amalgamation of all of the you've got florence you've got ducats you've got pound sterling you've got livre tournois uh, from France. So you have all these currencies and nobody is, it's a lot of work to keep track of the value of these things. And they don't trade well outside of the country in which they're issued. So the Bank of Amsterdam actually solved this problem by saying, we will, so they will quote rates of all of these different currencies. And then we will take your metal currency and we'll turn it into a bank deposit. Okay, so that way, and the bank deposit is worth, it's in, um, is in guilders. So the bank deposit is in a currency that does not actually have a form in coin. The Dutch guilder only existed on the ledger of the Bank of Amsterdam. Oh, it sounds like it's made of gold. Um, Yeah, except it's really made of paper. Like it, 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 it only exists on paper. So they say, okay, we will take your florins from Florencia, Italy, and then we will turn it into a deposit of guilders, and that'll be on our book. You can then command that deposit. You can transfer it to one of our other customers, do whatever you want with it. You can move it to our correspondent in London if you want to. Um, 
if you pay us a fee, you can get it, you know, you can get it back out in coins. Most people didn't really want to do that. Um, so the, so the bank of Amsterdam was literally a storage house for money. And they would take an illiquid form of money and turn it into a liquid form of money. And if you look at the bank of Amsterdam's balance sheet from, uh, 1609, basically when they started all the way up until 1780, they really didn't expand credit. They didn't take these, you know, they didn't take this monetary base, this metal, and start writing credit to anybody who wanted it, right? They just took it and they turned it into deposits, and people would then transact with the deposits. And that was sort of the magic of the Bank of Amsterdam. Where they got into trouble was the Fourth Anglo Dutch War. So they financed the Dutch East India Company, which was doing, I believe the East India Company was doing a lot of the fighting in the war, um, privateers and such. And they financed the Amsterdam government and whatever the government of the Netherlands looked like at that time to fight this war with England. What and year so, is this? 1697, Ish. or no, 1780. Excuse me, I'm way off. Yeah, 1780. 1780, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that war ended in, I believe, 784, um, English victory. So the Bank of Amsterdam embarks in this journey of credit expansion where not only are they taking in uh, – so, so they no longer have this ratio of one, uh, one metal to one deposit, right? They expand that ratio to write this credit to the Dutch East India Company and the, the various governments in the Netherlands. and they if they had won the war they may not have gone under right but they lost the war and so they did go under by the early 1800s the bank of amsterdam actually closed and it was replaced with uh, a different central bank and so that created a vacuum for britain would be the dutch to step in i wonder what were the terms of the peace like i wonder if England has owned Amsterdam ever since because the, the Dutch royal family is a little shady. Like, I don't know if they, they could be running the world right now or they could just be a vassal of England. I wonder if that, you know, it's those turning points in history where, mm -hmm. you know, behind the scenes, the occulted knowledge can last through the ages. So that's an interesting yeah. pivot point. Maybe you need to look into whatever the war you were talking about earlier. Maybe I'll look into this one. Yeah, I... um yeah, that would be really interesting, actually. I would like to know. Um, it, you know, the people who, it was very easy when the Dutch East India Company did finally decide, okay, we really want to take some, you know, we really want some credit from the Bank of Amsterdam. It was a very corrupt institution. I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did, only essentially doing deposit banking, because the owners of the Bank of Amsterdam also owned a great deal of the shit in the Dutch East India Company. So again, I'm very surprised that it went as long as it did under that system because it, it would have been very simple for them to just say, okay, you know, Dutch East India Company, you want us to, you know, you want us to create some deposits to buy some stocks or some bonds or just write you a loan and whatever. Um, but it was, yeah, it was when they uh, fought the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War that they went against those principles and they got, you know, they got uh, slammed for it. And the re so one reason that I bring that up is because in this de-dollarization conversation, we talk about central banks' balance sheets. How many, how many of these big central banks have expanded their balance sheet? And when they expand their balance sheet, they're buying debt. 
So when the Fed, when we talk about the Fed expanding its balance sheet from a trillion dollars in 2007, like 800 billion or something, all the way up to, I think it peaked at eight and a half trillion, uh, yeah, eight and a half trillion, something like that in 2022. That's balance sheet expansion. And they're doing that by buying all of this debt. It's very similar to what the Bank of Amsterdam did in 1780. And so this idea that the more a central bank expands its balance sheet, the more that central bank's currency kind of falls into question, falls into danger, the more the stability of that central bank gets called into question is very real. Like, you know, it's happened before. So that's not um, so it's it's not crazy to say if a central bank expands its balance sheet too much, then, yeah, it's going to have some problems. Well, Russia did um, in the 90s. Yes. Yeah, they did. And um, the involvement of the Treasury Department and Goldman Sachs in making all that happen was, again, evil and evil genius. Is that the one the smartest guys in the room? I thought that was about Enron, but I could be wrong. Oh, it might be. There was one about long-term capital management, right? Wasn't that part of the Russian collapse? Yes. Yeah, they bought. Uh, yeah, they bought high-yield Russian bonds, and the uh, bonds went bad because Russia went bad. But you think that Goldman Sachs and those guys had a part. It was called When Genius Failed. That's it. And actually, when I have Lord, failed, okay. The Lords of Finance. I have that one. I probably have both of them. But um, so I wonder, so you're saying that uh, outside entities were instrumental in the Russian collapse? Yeah. So I read some articles from back in 19, uh, when what the early nineties. Yeah. So 1991, 1992, there was a lot of debate when the Soviet union fell about how to disperse the assets, right? Because it seems very simple to go communism to free market capitalism, whatever. But what is the method by which you're going to take assets that have been in the arms of the state and you're going to make them available to the population? If you convolute it and do it in a very finicky way that no one understands but the people who are writing the plan, then you can arrange a situation where only your friend relatives are going to be able to acquire Russian assets. So they they came up with this. So there was a writer in, I think, I don't know if it was the, it was in the Moscow Times and this article had been translated into English, um, but they were specifically talking about the Moscow assets. And this was somebody who was uh, sympathetic to like libertarian free market economics. And so she was arguing and and she posted many articles like this, but she was, I, I should know the name, but it's been a long time since I've read up on this, but she was arguing that the way that this should be done is just an auction. You tell people what the assets are. Here is a building. Russia has a currency. People can take what they have. They bring it here, and you and you just auction it off. As simple as possible. What was devised instead, and where I think the outside influence came in, is they devised this weird voucher system where basically every household in the Soviet Union, or at least the Russian part of the Soviet Union, would get a an allotment of vouchers. Um, but then there was, they were, it was designed in such a way where it was very easy to convince these Russian households to sell their, their vouchers for less than they were worth. Exactly. I had a Russian friend. He said they were so used to like rubles being worth nothing or whatever. They didn't think it was going to be worth anything anyway. And they were absolutely 
bamboozled for sure. And that was the plan. Very good. I was wondering if you, I was, I wasn't wondering if you got it. I was wondering if I understood it correctly from my actual friend who was a part of it, you know, was a Mm -hmm. citizen. And Mm -hmm. what you're saying is exactly what he said. And he said they still, he said that something that still happens there is they have really old dollars. They have, really? like, they still save that that's how they used to save. That's how they used to stockpile. Like, they in under their mattresses, he thinks there's a lot of actual paper dollars from from really, really that, old ones over there under mattresses and stuff. But, yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah, I wonder that's if there's some coins with that. silver content, too, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe. But I do, oh, yes, maybe. Um, but he, uh, I, I think that's, it's gratifying to hear that you're, stories along because now i feel like that's probably exactly what happened yeah yeah people just didn't didn't know what those assets were worth it's uh, like the one one anecdote i heard is that they could they could buy you know ten thousand rubles or or you know you pick the number for just a bodka you know and it was but but the but with those ten thousand rubles you could then go and buy a building in moscow so it was just insane yeah they because people just didn't didn't have faith in stock or whatever shares and i would i actually when i look at last time i looked which was probably five years ago of what russia's debt was it was only 13 percent of gdp when like germany was like 113 percent. and i thought "Eh, maybe going bankrupt once well maybe lose maybe having no credit is not a bad way to go Yeah, you know, I I think that one of the greatest things for the United States economy uh, when it was a fledgling developing basket spec, you know, just after the revolution was they actually allowed their continental currency to fail. Um, And and that is that is literally what uh, Ludwig von Mises and I think it's the theory of money and credit, but I, I could be wrong. The the right thing to do when your currency comes under pressure is not to do what um is not to do what Volcker and Carter did, or Volcker and Reagan. And Reagan, and raise I know. You that's just funny because I hate if the that. The currency going to fall. You just let it collapse. Yes, you know? that's what I thought. That's funny. I never. Yeah. Heard, I don't remember reading that. Although <laughs> Pete Q would say, if it's out there, you read it, and that's why you think it. Like, there's basically no original thought. If it's already out there, you cannot take Agreed. credit for having it. You agree? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, because yeah. he says that the New York Times crossword puzzle is easier to do at night. Really? So, so all the people who do it in the morning are using those words all day. Oh, yeah. And then you think you've got it, mm-hmm. but you're... That's you, so interesting. Isn't that interesting? Even if it's not true, like, it's still true. Yeah. You know, it has to be true. And even in a, a, a micron amount of movement it has to be true yeah yeah if you hear those words even if if there's even a two percent greater likelihood of you hearing those words then it's going to increase your chances of point two doing doing the yeah yeah exactly yes totally that's interesting i never heard that yeah i love it it. even if it's just total bullshit it's definitely true so um yes so uh okay um so they have yeah, so collapse yeah, is so always they, as bad as it sounds. I'm but sorry. We're probably, we're I said collapse is not always as bad as it sounds. So I don't know where we're definitely sneaking we're around here. Zagging so and where, are sure. we, where are we going to come <laughs> back and pick up that original <laughs> mainstream? Okay, so the in in London, 
the London money market comes into a position where it's basically financing all of global trade. So if a, a wine seller, like let's say a wine retailer in the United States, wants to buy a shipment of wine from somebody in Paris, let's say you know a wine wholesaling firm, however you want to call it, uh, obviously these business arrangements probably had very different aims back then. Um, but it wants, so let's say this U.S. firm, it wants to import like $1,000 worth of wine and then it wants to sell it. They're not going to do this in, uh, they're not going to do this in dollars and they're not going to do it in francs either. And they're not even going to really settle it between banks, just between France and the U.S. So what's actually going to happen is the bank of the U.S. importer is going to have a correspondent in London and the bank of the uh, Parisian or the, the French exporter is going to have a correspondent in London. And ultimately, that's where that trade is going to settle. It's going to happen in the London money market rather than New York or Paris. And the reason that they do that is because they're, uh, there ends up being a very active and uh, what's called liquid money market in the city of London. So it's very easy for these banks to take all of this credit being this short-term, very short-term credit. When we talk about credit, when it comes to trade, we're talking 30, 60, 90 days. It's not, you know, this sort of five-year loan or a 30-year mortgage or anything like that. Super short-term. But the London money market gets really good at handling all of this trade activity from around the world. And so it's a very attractive place to park some cash. Like, let's say that you're a wealthy person or you're a, a firm with a lot of excess in France and you just want a stable place to invest and earn some interest. You can, you, through your correspondent in Paris, or excuse me, through your bank in Paris, they will make arrangements with their correspondent in London. Your balances will essentially be forwarded, converted into sterling, and you'll be earning a sterling interest rate. So it's they really smoothed out these sorts of arrangements in such a way that it just became a very attractive place to park. You know, it became a savings account for the world, and it also became a, a source of yeah, it, exactly. Really a clearinghouse um, and a source of import-export credit for the world. And so while the Bank of Amsterdam was, you know, the first central bank, as most people know it, the Bank of Amsterdam wasn't playing as big of a role as the Bank of England was. And and the Amsterdam Financial Center wasn't playing as big of a role as the city of London was. So these are things that really got going specifically in the mid 19th century. That's when you really had like all the components of a truly reserved currency that we see today. Um, the sterling, at least the way that I see it, I've read um, because there's a lot of people will say, you know, at some point the French franc was the reserve currency and the Dutch gilder. And then before that, it was like the Spanish silver dollar um, and the way that I see it, there's a little bit of truth to that in that there was some international use of those currencies. And, and Amsterdam did truly innovate in how they took those metals and they turned them into deposits that people found it very easy to use and a lot of people did use, a lot of traders, firms, um, other banks. But the first currency to really play all of the Hold roles. On. That is very interesting, but I did think that... The Knights Templar during the Crusades were really the first ones to use paper to represent, like on a widespread scale, to represent metal in a bank. 
But this, what Amsterdam did was a little different because it was about the problem of competing currencies. Yeah, I, I would say yes. So um, in the London money market, what would happen is that, you, so you had this trade activity. People are not paying in paper currency. They're paying in these things called bills of exchange. Those bills of exchange originated in the era that you're talking about, which is the Templar era, basically the Middle Ages. And um, it would, so you had the Templars who would use the things and they would use them in order to be able to pay for things outside of the city but where they would start their expedition. So uh, I keep using Florence as an example. So let's just say Florence again. Um, but now I'm down in you know the Mediterranean somewhere. And so I need to get some coin out of a storehouse in order to buy some stuff for my expedition. Okay. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to lug all of that coin with me. You know, if I'm, if I'm the Knights Templar, if I'm on this campaign, that's fair. If I'm on this military campaign. So what the bankers do back in my home city, let's say it's Florence is they write me a bill that says that I'm entitled to, you know, 400 ducats or uh, 400 florin or whatever the currency is in one of those different cities where that banking family has a correspondence. And and the thing about um, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I've been I did a, a little bit of um, actually a lot of research on medieval banking just a few days ago and I um, <laughs> there's a, a book on it as one does <laughs> yeah the, there's a there's actually a book on it by uh, an economist named Raymond DeRuver who is basically like the economic historian on medieval banking so he's got I mean he he really dove into it and, and it's, I, I was just reading one of his papers and it's, it's amazing. Um, but the way that those, the way that banking would work back then is they would use these, they would use these bills in order to say, Hey, I am a customer of such and such banker back in Florence. You know, let's say it's, you know, it could be the Medici's, right? I'm a customer of the Medici's back in Florence. I am now here in, Mm. Oh shoot! Let's say Mecca. So, oh, they didn't go to Mecca. Yeah, they yeah, went to yeah, Jerusalem. Yeah. They went to Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's say I'm I'm at Jerusalem, or maybe I'm in Turkey or somewhere on the way, um, and I now need some coins from a correspondent of Medici. I have this piece of paper. It has Medici's seal on it, and it entitles me to four hundred uh, florin of coins so that I can go and buy some food and weapons or, you know, whatever. So that, so that is where the, this, this idea of correspondent banking and how, mm -hmm. you know, using paper to command coins is definitely where this originated, at least in Europe. Cause with like most things, the Chinese were doing it however many centuries. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> but know? the, the Amsterdam innovation was different. I understand it. Yes. Okay. Okay.